So this morning, we come to a, just a wonderful chapter. I, I know that sounds wrong because every chapter is truly wonderful, certainly here in John's Gospel. But John chapter 17 holds a special place in many, many people's hearts. Uh, we're going to see that in John 17, there's a sense in which this chapter is really summing up in a wonderful way the whole of John's gospel until now. So we've been in John for two years now, and this chapter, John 17, is going to sum up the last two years as we go, as we go through it. So if you've been with us for those two years, you're, you're equipped, you're ready to understand and begin to grasp this chapter. Not only does this chapter sum up all that's come before, but it's, it's, a, it's a preparation for and a transition to the cross. So this chapter is the last chapter before the arrest and the betrayal, the betrayal, the arrest, the sufferings, the crucifixion of our, of our Lord in chapter 18. Ever since the end of chapter 13, okay, Judas left the upper room, right? They were all in the upper room, and then Judas left to betray Jesus. And so since then, Jesus has been alone with his 11. No more public ministry now. It's just Jesus and the 11. And Jesus has been talking with his disciples about going away. And I don't know if you, have, if you remember now that his going away is the key to something. Right? What's his going away the key to? I'll even take answers. Well, to the, yeah, really, to the Spirit coming back, and, and in the end, to, to his own presence with his disciples, right? Um, um, coming to them after the resurrection, coming to them in the Spirit, and coming to them at the end of the age when he receives them to be with himself. If Jesus doesn't go away, he can't be with them forever. And so that's, that's what this discourse has been about. When we came to the end of this whole discourse three weeks ago, Jesus concluded with these words. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So I just want to point out that if this is a farewell, it's not a gloomy farewell, right? When we think of farewells, it's like, oh, it's kind of gut-wrenching, it's hard, it's sad. But this farewell is not sad, it's not gloomy, it's triumphant. It's triumphant. It's a farewell that's full of joy. A farewell that's full of hope because it's the prelude to him being with us forever and ever and ever with no ending and no more farewells. No more. So now as we begin chapter 17, Jesus turns from addressing the disciples as their teacher as their Lord, and now we get something very different. He turns from addressing them as teacher and Lord to addressing his Father as the Son. That, that reality changes a whole lot right now. So, so just keep, keep that contrast in mind. We come to verse 1 then of John 17. We read, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, we, we, we get a flavor for something. I don't know, when you read John 17, I don't know where you go. 
I don't know the reaction that you have, but some have described reading this chapter as though it's a kind of holy of holies. I don't know if you've heard that description before. It's like we come to this chapter and suddenly we've entered into um, sacred territory in a unique way. The son is communing with his father in the most intimate kind of prayer. So in the Lord's Prayer, he taught them to pray, Father, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so in a sense, that was Jesus telling us how to pray. Here we have Jesus just praying. We we get to hear this. And so we could reasonably ask ourselves, and I've, I've asked myself this question to a point, is it right for me to listen in? Now, and, and we could say, well, of course it is, sure. It's, it's there in the Bible. Okay? Well, we don't want to have that attitude, do we? This is, is it right for us to, I mean, he's, here's the son of God praying to his father. Do we listen in or not? Right? Is this appropriate? We're going to see this morning and in the coming weeks through this prayer that it's, it's rooted in and it's very deeply expressive of this unique one-of-a-kind relationship that the son has with the father. So this prayer is all about the son and the father. And yet, here's the wonderful thing. And here's the mystery that we're going to see. We're going to see that from beginning to end, this prayer reaches out to you. This is a prayer that even though we watch and we think, I don't know if I should listen or not, it's a prayer that calls to us to come, to enter in and that embraces us. So as Jesus prays this prayer, we're not left on the outside looking in. Instead, we're being called to enter ourselves. Here's the thing. Watch for this. We are being called to enter ourselves into this intimate relationship that the Son has with the Father. This very thing we're watching and thinking, I don't know. I don't, can I watch? Can I listen? No, Jesus is saying, come and be part of this. So Jesus prayed out loud in the presence of his disciples. Why do you think he did that? Out loud in the presence of his disciples. Because he wanted them to hear. And not just to hear, but to participate. So as we come to this chapter, we come with this unique sense that we're entering a sacred place, but also with the knowledge that that's precisely what we've been called to do. John 17, 1, let's come back to it. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. So in chapter 2, Jesus said to his mother, she informed him, they're out of wine at the wedding in Cana. There's no more wine, implying, what are you going to do? And Jesus responds, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Chapter 7, we get another expression of that. The people were seeking to seize Jesus. No man laid his hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one yet seized him, even though they wanted to, because his hour had not yet come. Now when we get to chapter 12, the perspective changes. So we've reached a new spot. Jesus has already entered Jerusalem on a donkey, triumphantly into the city. It's only five days now until the crucifixion. And John tells us 
that there are some Greeks among those who are going up to worship at the feast and that the Greeks want to see Jesus. And so the disciples are, are struggling with this. What do we do about Greeks wanting to see Jesus? And so they come and they tell Jesus, and Jesus responds like this. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we've heard about his hour before, but we've never heard about being glorified in connection with his hour. So I want to ask you this question. What is Jesus' hour? What is it? It's, it's talked about a lot here. What is his hour? The hour for which he came into the world? The hour around which all the history of the world is turning and revolving? And the answer is, it's the hour of his, in your handout, his glorification via the shame of the cross. Uh, It's important we say it that way. The hour of Jesus isn't just dying on a cross. The hour of Jesus is not just death. The hour of Jesus is his glorification through the shame of the cross. It's going to be through the glorification of Jesus when he's lifted up from the earth on a cross to be displayed for everyone to see on a cross so that then he can be further lifted up from the cross to heaven, to the right hand of God. It's going to be on the ground of that glorification of Jesus, all the parts of that, lifted up on the cross, lifted up to the right hand of the Father, glorified. It's on that ground that he will draw, draw all men, Jews and who? And Greeks, Gentiles, to himself. So now we understand. Now we get it, right? Why does Jesus respond to the disciples when they say, hey, Jesus, there's some Greeks here that want to see you. What do we do about this? Their question is legitimate. Jesus knows that his hour has now come and that it's this hour that's going to open the door. It's this hour that's going to, that's going to open up the way for even these Greeks, Gentiles like you and me, to come to him. So Jesus' hour is an hour of triumph. It's an hour in your handout of glory. And yet he goes on to say, in just a couple verses later, now my soul has become troubled. Your soul is yourself, right? It's, It's you. It's your deepest part of you. And he says, my soul has become troubled. Troubled is not, is not a tame word here. Troubled is the idea of, the, it's used of the sea being stirred up by a storm, of its raging. And so the soul of Jesus was in an upheaval, in a turmoil. It was raging, as it were. And so he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Okay, you see the resolution of Jesus. You see his resolve. But how do you keep going? Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. Now, wait a minute. Whose glory is this hour about? Whose glory is it for? Jesus didn't seek his own glory independently of his Father. If we've seen anything in John, it's, it's that. 
So if Jesus did seek his own glory, why did he seek his own glory? So that his father would be glorified in him and through him. Father, glorify your name. So when Jesus comes to the hour of his own glorification, who's going to be glorified now in this hour? On the cross, lifted up on the cross, lifted up to the right hand of the Father. Who's glorified? Jesus is. But when he comes to that hour of his own glorification, what does he pray? Father, glorify your name. Look at our Savior. This is what accomplished your salvation. Because Jesus doesn't go to the cross unless it's for the sake of his Father's glory. What is Jesus doing when he prays these words? When he says, Father, glorify your name, he is submitting himself to his Father's will. And so he's submitting himself to the suffering and shame and degradation of the cross. As Neil pointed out to us last week, the cross to us has in some sense been sentimentalized, romanticized in a way. We wear crosses as symbols, and that's right. There is glory in the cross. But let us remember that in the Roman world, the cross was what thousands of people, hundreds, I don't know, tens of thousands of people died on. Not just Jesus. Criminals. Right? It was a degradation. And it's in and through the suffering and shame and degradation of the cross that Jesus is glorified. How can it be? It's in and through that glorification of Jesus, in your handout, that the name of who? The Father was to be glorified. So Jesus prays here in chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. It's here. Glorify your Son. We know the Father, we know Jesus doesn't seek his own glory. Why does he say then, glorify your Son? If Jesus does not seek his own glory, why does he pray for his glory? Because it's through his own glory that the Father is glorified. Do we feel then like we're on the outside listening in? Because I, I don't know, maybe we're a little tried about that before, but now we listen to Jesus praying this to his Father, and I just feel like, okay, I shouldn't even be listening. This is sacred. This is, this is between the Son and the Father. What am I here for? What does the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father have to do with, with us? How can it have anything to do with us? In your handout, as we've already begun to see, we see that it has everything to do with us. And maybe in a way that we don't expect. So Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Then he continues in verse 2 in what I think is unexpected, right? Because we're just about to turn away, right? We're just about to say, I think I should leave this be. And then we hear these words, and we stop. And maybe we turn back around. He says, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And I'm kind of of the mind that I say, what just happened here? 
I thought this prayer was going somewhere, but I was wrong. What, what have I misunderstood? So let's, let's think about it. Okay, I'll ask you the question in light of what we just read. What did the father give to his son? Well, there's two things, but the first thing is that he gave him authority over who? All flesh. Okay, what does that mean? It means that the authority of Jesus does not just extend to people who are um, Christians. The authority of Jesus extends to who? All flesh. To every man who is currently walking around on this planet Earth, the authority of Jesus extends. To every woman. To every child. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so there's no place in heaven or on earth that you can go. There's no nation. There's no nation on earth, no place and people in the world that falls outside the purview of Jesus' sovereign rule and authority, of God's sovereign, of Jesus' sovereign rights. And why do we care about that? What does that mean? Well, here in this context, it means that the Son can give eternal life. That's what it means. He can give eternal life to all that the Father has given him, to people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Why can Jesus give eternal life to to people in Indonesia? Because every single soul in Indonesia lies underneath his own sovereign authority. That's why he can give eternal life to those that the Father has given him in Indonesia. Because his authority extends to everyone. Now, this is the foundation, then, for evangelism and missions. Isn't that clear? Here's the beauty of it. Brothers and sisters, wherever we are, Morris, whatever city you're from, wherever you go, there is the sovereign authority of Jesus over everyone to whom you could ever speak the gospel. Pick the person you speak the gospel to, and that person is accountable to the sovereign authority of Jesus. The Father gave Jesus authority. That's why after saying in Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, what does Jesus say next? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But still, that's a little digression. Now we have to ask, what does the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father that we saw in verse 1 when we were ready to turn away, what does that have to do with me? What does this sacred relationship between the Father and the Son have to do with us? With giving us eternal life? Now, maybe if you were to ask that, answer that question, I mean it. Answer, try answering the question. What does the glory of God have to do with giving you something? Right? What does the glory of God have to do with giving you eternal life? What would you answer? Maybe the first thought we have would be, well... If God gives me eternal life, I'm so grateful for what he gave me that I just turn around and praise and glorify God through Jesus Christ for all that he's done. And so that's how he's glorified. That's true, but it completely misses the mark. Believe it or not, it actually separates too much between the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father and the eternal life that he's given to us. What does the eternal life that we have have to do with the glory of the Son and the Father? Well, what does Jesus say? This is 
eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What it, let's look at this. What's eternal life? What, what would you say eternal life is? Well, first of all, it's not the result of knowing God. It's not like, well, if I know God, I'll get eternal life. If I know Jesus, I'll be rewarded with eternal life. Because when we think of it that way, then, then eternal life is just this. It's unending existence, living forever in a resurrected body. That's like the reward. I know God, I believe in God, and what do I get over here? I get to live forever happily in a resurrection body. Well, that's not eternal life. That's not. Eternal life is a kind of life. It's a quality of life. We've seen that before. That's wholly different than anything this world can give you. And so the Father, uh, in, in your handout, eternal life, what's the word there? Is, yeah, right? Two, two letters, but the most important here in the world. Eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so here's how it works, right? The Father and the Son are glorified in and through the gift of eternal life to us because the gift of eternal life is, it is the gift of knowing the Father. It is the gift of knowing the Father through our knowing the Son. That is eternal life. And honestly, sometimes we could say, well, why would anyone not want eternal life? Well, I'll tell you why. Because people don't want to know God. Right? They don't want to know Jesus. Well, who doesn't want to live forever, happily ever after? In that case, everyone would want eternal life, but that's not what eternal life is. Yes. I mean, we, we do live in joy forever. But that's not what eternal life is, and that's why, most, that's why most people in the world do not want eternal life. Because eternal life is to know God through his Son, Jesus Christ. And our hearts are depraved and wicked and sinful, and we revolt against that kind of righteousness and holiness. But are you beginning to see then how intimately one is the glorification of Jesus with your eternal life? Your eternal life. How intimately one is the glorification of the Father with my eternal life. And now you see how we're being called in to this prayer. To this holy of holies. To be be a part. The Father and the Son, brothers and sisters... The Father and Son are glorified, by the way, that doesn't mean made to be more glorious, but glorified, not primarily through your praises. They're not glorified primarily through us getting here and singing songs of praises. They are, but that's not primary. They're not primarily glorified through something we do, believe it or not, not through something we do or that we give to the Father or the Son. The Father and Son are glorified through what we have been given. Does that not strip? Even the, I mean, we thought we had something to offer to God, right? What's, hey, I can praise and glorify, and he is pleased to receive it, and he is. But, but underneath that, 
God is glorified through what he gives us, which is the knowledge of him that we could not have had except through Jesus Christ. We're glorified, he is glorified through what we've been given, the gift of beholding that glory, gazing upon it, and, and then praising him for it is, in fact, in a sense, necessary but secondary. The gift of seeing and knowing the Father and seeing and knowing the Son. The Father and the Son are glorified, not primarily through what you do or what you give, but rather through what you have been given. Brothers and sisters, what have you been given? What have you been given? The gift of eternal life. Now maybe we can understand better and wonder even more at how verses 1 and 2 go together. Listen now. Okay. Jesus spoke these things, although when he was talking to the disciples, now he turns and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So far we might think we're on the outside listening in. We turn to go away, to leave, and then we hear, we hear Jesus say, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So I'll ask you now, what is the glorification of the Father? What does the glorification of the Son have to do with us? With giving us eternal life? And the answer is literally everything. This is the meaning of the hour that has now come. Hour is not just a fancy word. It's like, oh, that's John. Hour is a word filled up with beauty. So maybe now we can understand better, wonder more. That's why I, I said that for a reason. Because sometimes when we get understanding, we think, I got that. Well, the point of understanding something here in Scripture is I understand, and now I don't quite get it, right? I wonder. I understand, but I wonder. That Jesus would say in verse 10, All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. He's praying to the Father, and then he says, and I have been glorified in them. Now, what surprises you about those words? He does not say he's been glorified by us. He's been glorified in us. Maybe now we can understand better and wonder even more at Jesus' prayer in verses 22 and 23. He prays, The glory which you have given me I have given to them (laughs) that they may be one just as we are one. He's inviting us in. He's calling us in through the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life is not a reward of unending life for believing in Jesus. That's not fundamentally what it is. right? The gift of eternal life is is the calling of us in 
to know God, to, to know him through his son Jesus. That they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. So when Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. When you hear him pray that now, you don't hear something that you better turn away from. What do you hear him praying? You hear him praying for your eternal life. You hear him committing himself to the suffering of the cross so that we might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. When we hear those words then, we hear words that are reaching out to me, that are reaching out to you and embracing you and calling, calling you to enter yourself into that intimacy of relationship that exists between the Son and the Father. You want me to define that more? I cannot define that more, except to say that that, that that bears the fruit in and looks like certainly keeping his commandments, right? We've seen that in John. It looks like trusting him. We're not on the outside listening in. So Jesus now continues in verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Again, we feel this intimate intimacy of relationship between the Son and his Father. Maybe we have a question, though. How can Jesus say, I finished the work? How can he say, I glorified you, I finished the work, and he still got the cross only hours ahead? Well, it's called proleptic. That's just the name, fancy word for it. He's just praying like that because he looks ahead just a couple hours now. He sees the cross. He's resolutely unwaveringly committed to doing his father's will. And so he can pray already as if it's already accomplished. I have finished the task you gave me to do. Which was everything from his baptism to the cross. But now the question I have for you is, now think, of, what was the work the father gave the son to do? When the father sent the son into the world, what did he send him to do? Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth. So what was Jesus' work on the earth? To glorify his Father. How does Jesus glorify the Father? Not by praising the Father. Did Jesus praise the Father? Yes, he sang the Psalms. He did. But that was not how Jesus glorified the Father. Could have done that in heaven. Right? Not by coming himself to know the Father. He already knew the Father. He could have been that in heaven. He knew the Father intimately in heaven. How does Jesus glorify the Father on earth? How does he do it, brothers and sisters? He does it by manifesting the Father to you. To you. So that you come to know the Father. Jesus glorifies the Father by giving to you. And the handout is to us, but I just want to say to you. The true knowledge of the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Which is just to say that the Father glorifies, the Son glorifies the Father by giving to us eternal life. Eternal life. This explains Jesus' words in verses 6 to 8. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth. How did Jesus glorify the Father? He answers in verses 6 to 8. 
I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Wow. They were yours. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them. I glorified you by revealing you to them that they might know you, which is eternal life. They received them. They truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. And then I'm going to skip now verse 5. Then Jesus prays in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me. Wait a minute. Does Jesus seek his own glory? Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Okay, are you, bit, are you about ready to turn, turn away again? Say, I don't know if I should be here. This is pretty sacred stuff. I said at the beginning that we would see this, this is a prayer that's rooted in, it's rooted in and it's expressing this unique one-of-a-kind relationship that the Son has with the Father. And it's unique, that's right. It's unique, it's one-of-a-kind. We are not the only begotten Son of the Father. That's Jesus only, right? So how, and we saw that because how can Jesus speak of knowing the only true God and knowing Jesus Christ coordinate in the same breath. How do you do that unless Jesus is equal with God? Otherwise, it's blasphemy. How can Jesus manifest the Father to, to you, reveal the Father to you so perfectly and so completely as to give you eternal life? Unless Jesus partakes of all that the Father is. How can Jesus show us the Father so fully as to give us eternal life unless Jesus is partaking of all that the Father is. How can Jesus pray? Listen to what he prays. I mean, someone wants to say Jesus is not fully God. And I would say that is absolutely blasphemy. It's a blasphemy of the Father. It's not just a blasphemy of Jesus the Son. It's a blasphemy of the Father. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me together with yourself. If Jesus prays that and is not, say, and is not insane, if he is truly praying that and it is the truth, then he must be equal with God or else we are degrading the Father to the level of a creature. Father, glorify me together with yourself. With the glory which I had with you, with you, before the world was. How can Jesus pray that unless he is verily God of God, light of light, very God of very God. We hear Jesus pray these words, and where do we find ourselves? Where are we now? If we were ever on the outside, listening in, right? That's here. And yet, maybe, we have just this inkling of now, do I turn away? And we ask, why does Jesus pray this? Why? Did he just ask that question? Does he seek his own glory? Is this at the very last, at the very end of it all, is Jesus finally succumbing to self-seeking? Father, glorify me. Is that what's going on here? Or, 
Or is this the ultimate expression of Jesus' desire that the Father would be glorified through the eternal life Jesus gives to you and to me? Which is to say, through our fullest possible knowledge of God. We don't have to wonder about the answer to that question. At the very end of this chapter, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. Oh, we are invited in, brothers and sisters. Jesus didn't pray, Father, glorify me together with yourself without an eye to you. Without an eye to me. Do you, uh, does, that, does that cause you to know the love with which we have been loved? That when Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me together with yourself, he prayed that with an eye to you being with him, that you might see that glory. And why does he want you to see his glory? Because when you see the glory of the Son, whose glory do you see? The glory of the Father. And when you see and you know the glory of the the Father in the glory of the Son, what is that? It is to know God. It is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, whom he has sent, which is what? Eternal life. That is eternal life. I want to ask you, do you want eternal life? Do you want it? I'll ask you in a moment, do you have it? So the last words that Jesus prays are these. In In this prayer, John 17, the last words he prays, Verses 25 to 26. O righteous Father, he just asked that the Father would glorify him. Glorify me, right? And then he prays. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these, look, here we are again. He, he, He brings us in. These have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them. And I will make it known. When is he saying he's going to make it known? Well, no doubt, today. But that includes the day when we see his glory and are with him where he is. Brothers and sisters, what is Jesus going to be doing for all eternity when we gaze on his glory and see his glory? What's he going to be doing that whole time for all eternity? He's going to be making the Father's name known to you. He's going to be making the Father's name known to me. That's, 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 that's heaven. That's eternal life. Knowing God. When we then hear Jesus pray, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was, we hear words reaching out to us, embracing us, calling us in. We're not on the outside listening in. We hear words that are the guarantee in your handout of our being called to enter ourselves into this intimacy of relationship the Son has with the Father. We hear words that are the promise to us of eternal life. Before then we conclude, I just want to encourage you, read these verses. Because these are, John is a unique gospel. And all of Scripture calls for meditation. But, I mean, John's Gospel calls for reading 
and meditating and pondering and reflecting. And as you read then the whole of John 17, and maybe particularly verses 1 to 5, read verses 1 to 5 and ask yourself, how does this go together? What does the glory of God have to do with my eternal life? Should I really be here listening to this prayer? Get ready to walk away, as it were, out of reverence, and then be called back, and then be called back by the words of Jesus. I'm going to ask you then, after all this, this is for real, this is a genuine question. Do you, personally, and anyone else around you, do you have this eternal life? Which is to say, do you know God? The only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We've seen this throughout John. We've said it before, but we see it here powerfully. Christianity is not, first of all, or even primarily about doing. Though we must and will keep his commandments. We've seen that in John 15. But it is about knowing. And knowing not just in an academic, factual sense, I know all the facts, but knowing relationally, knowing God. How do you know God? He's not just an a, a, a obscure idea. He has been concretely revealed in the incarnation of Jesus. Do you know him? Eternal life is not just unending existence. It's not even unending existence happily in a resurrection body. That is not eternal life. It is not unending existence happily in a resurrection body in heaven. That is not eternal life. That is included. That is a result. That is there. That is peripheral, as it were. But what is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing the God who is life. That's eternal life. It's knowing the God who is life. The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So I never thought of it this way before in my life. But I think we can see from this passage that eternal life is the reason God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. And what I love about that is that eternal life, now that we understand it, sums up the glory of God in what he has given to us. Eternal life is not just about you. It's first of all about the glory of God. I'll ask one more time then. Do you have, do I have, I ask myself, do I have eternal life? Because if I do, if I have eternal life, then what do I have? I have everything. I have, I possess. Whether I'm living this out or not is another thing, but I possess the ultimate reason for joy and for peace and for hope. You say, well, you already possess. How can you hope? Well, Jesus told us why. 
Because if we have eternal life now, brothers and sisters, if you answered, yes, I have eternal life because I have come to know the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, then you know that one day you'll experience this eternal life that you already have. You won't be given it for the first time. No, no, you already have it. But you will enter into the fullest experience of that eternal life that you have now even more fully than when Jesus' prayer is answered and we are with him where he is and we see his glory, which is to see and to know God, the only true God. This is eternal life. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you that you have shown to us what eternal life is and that you have given this eternal life to us. Lord, we thank you that at the very moment when we would have thought we were excluded and should be excluded and should turn away from such such a sacred place that we hear words that, that call us in, that call us to know you. So that through our knowing you and beholding your glory in the gospel, in Jesus, your son, you are glorified. Lord, I pray that every soul in this room possesses eternal life as that freely given gift that Jesus gives because he has been given authority over all flesh. That means all of all flesh, all in this room, he has authority over that he might give to all that you have given to him eternal life. Lord, as we consider what we have, let us then pursue the fullest experience of that through obedience, through, through love, through trust, through listening and heeding your word until that day when Jesus' prayer is answered because we know you will answer it. And we, each one of us, find ourselves for real in the very presence of Jesus with him where he is, seeing his glory. And in seeing his glory, seeing the Father's glory, and in seeing this glory, knowing God fully, which is, which is, eternal life. We thank you for this. We praise you. We give you glory even now and now as we sing and prepare our hearts to take of this Lord's Supper, of this bread and this cup, which is the sign of that eternal life that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.